Find your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Now, if, you've, uh, if you're a parent, you've had that experience when like, your child is born, and like, it is really exciting. We've had the privilege of being able to do this four times, and, and you have all these high hopes for your kid, and you really want them to do well. And there's a lot of folks that are giving you advice. So, for instance, the doctors and nurses are telling you what you should do, and you try to pretty much do everything they say because you want your child to grow and to thrive and to do real well, right? And then, of course, you've got the mother-in-law and the mom there, and they're telling you all these things to do, and, and you do about half of that. And then, of course, on the TV, uh, they've got folks that are doing things with their kids, and you want to do the exact opposite, right? Okay? So whatever they're doing, you're going to do the opposite. And you really, you want your kid to thrive, you want them to grow and develop. But every once in a while, there's a situation developed that is very concerning. The doctors are very concerned. You starting to notice, and that is if they're not, they're not growing and they're, they're not gaining weight like they should. I mean, you know that they should be kind of here, and, and the doctors have a diagnosis for this, and it's called FTT, failure to thrive. And, if, and, you, and you see it, and to experience it. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why a little child will fail to thrive. Um, many of them, as you might imagine, are medical, okay? There's something that's going on in their metabolism. There's something that is causing the child not to grow and develop. But you also need to know that there's a lot of environmental issues. For instance, if the child doesn't bond with their mother specifically, there's something going on with this relationship or or maybe the parent doesn't understand nutrition, or maybe there's like poison or toxins or parasites or infections, or maybe poverty is part of coming into play here, a child can simply not thrive. And it's a, it's a very difficult situation, and one that everybody wants to address. And just like we take high degree of concern if we've got a child that's not thriving, God also has great degrees of concern if his children are not thriving. And failure to thrive is not only something that we might see with our children, it is something that is becoming almost commonplace with God's children. And we, uh, we actually know about this personally. I mean, think about your own life. Are you thriving or are you status quo or even, or even dying inside? What is going on? You know, when, when we talk about the term salvation— Oftentimes people think like, great, you know, God has saved me from my sins because of what Jesus did, and uh, so I'm not going to face the penalty and punishment for my sin. Great. But you don't understand that salvation is a term far more than just being released from your sins. It's a term for life. You see, God desires that his children literally thrive and experience the fullness of life in Christ. But the question is, how do you actually do that? How do you thrive? especially when life is so hard. I mean, there's difficulties, discouragement, sin issues, health issues, uh, failure in our own life. We face trials and temptations. We see things going on with our kids. We got health matters. We got great concerns. People that we love pass away. And how do you thrive? If you can answer the question, how do you thrive? You have the real potential to really live. So how is it that a Christian thrives? You're going to want to learn the truths of Romans 8. This is the answer. That's why I'm so glad that you're here today. Because Romans 8 tells us how you and I can truly thrive in this life. And it all begins in chapter 8, verse 1, by telling us that we have a new 
identity. I want to, if this is a new verse for you, I want to introduce to you one of the most liberating verses in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, it usually is tying it into what has just been said preceding. And that is certainly true here, but Romans 8.1 actually ties in the entire seven chapters and the glorious truth that a person is made right with God by faith in Christ. It's all about God's grace. And when you truly believe in Christ, he says, therefore, there is, there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have justification where a person is declared right by God and you receive the benefits of God's righteousness by faith. You believe in Christ. Do you know what the opposite of justification is? It's condemnation. Where not only do you have the verdict, you're guilty, but you yourself will pay the penalty and face the fullness of your guilt for violating God's commandments. You're guilty. And that, when you see Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the reason that you probably want to put a star by it or underline it, it tells you this. If you are truly believing in Christ, past sins, present sins, even the future sins that you will commit, even as a Christian, you are not going to ever be condemned for those. Do you know why? Because Christ has been condemned in your place. And as you start to open up and understand the reality of this verse, this changes everything because you realize you have a whole new identity. Now, let me just say something right up on the onset here. Don't think that, wow, that is awesome. Romans 8.1, that means I can pretty much do whatever I want. Guess what? I'm saved by grace. I'm I'm no longer facing condemnation. So I can do whatever I want whenever I want because it doesn't matter. Actually, that is to misunderstand what it means to be saved by grace. God has saved you and condemned Christ in your place so that you might experience the fullness of life, to know the joy of obedience, to walk in holiness, to follow God because you love God. But you need to know that if you sin and you're involved in patterns of intentional sin, God is going to address that in your life. In fact, he says in Hebrews chapter 12, that he scourges every son in whom he receives. If you're involved in sin, you need to fully expect that God is going to bring that to your attention and bring corrective measures to draw you back to the fullness of life and holiness and joy and peace in his presence. And you, if you're going through that right now, it explains why you've got this huge tension in your life, why you feel so discouraged, why you're just beating your head against a wall, but you know at the heart of it is rebellion in your heart. You also need to know this. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Whatever you sow in this life, you're going to reap. But the beauty of it is, though you can kind of make a mess of this life, if you're truly in Christ, you face no condemnation because Christ has paid it fully in our place. You know, in Romans 7, when we looked at it, even going in last week, I mean, the sad reality is that even if you're an apostle, you're still going to struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin. But the marvelous reality of God's grace is that you and I are never going to be condemned for it because Christ was condemned in our place. That means even if you're weak, unproductive, even if you've got some patterns of sin in your life, if you're truly trusting in Christ, 
you're not going to be condemned because one has been condemned in your place. But when you come to this whole idea of condemnation, there are a lot of Christians that though they believe they're saved by grace, they live in a world where they are discouraged, depressed, their life is heavy, it's like a weight, and they feel like they are condemned. Let me just tell you a little bit what this looks like. A guy by the name of Tim Chester wrote a book called Closing the Window. And he, in it, he has these quotes of men who have struggled with the guilt and condemnation that comes from viewing pornography. Now, these are anonymous quotes. They were, these guys are speaking right from the heart. They're telling you, what does it really look like in your heart? Let me read them. Quote, it's made me want to hide from God. It makes me doubt my salvation. And then the depression comes, and with the depression comes temptation to sin again. When you see these consecutive patterns, what happens? They get so depressed over what they've done, and they're not exactly sure what to do with it, that they're like looking for any sort of quote-unquote help or release or relief. And what happens is they go back to the very same thing that makes them feel terrible again. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vortex that takes you deeper and deeper. Or another quote, I feel, and I'll substitute a word, but there was a much stronger word that was used. I feel terrible about myself. I don't feel worthy to serve God, and I don't believe I can break the habit. Another, I feel dirty and unable to approach God after looking at porn. So often I feel unable to come to him in repentance, even though I know my sin is already dealt with. Or another, I couldn't talk with God about my problems. My picture of him was that he would accept me if, and when I scrubbed up enough. Now, you need to know something. Looking at pornography, always sinful, always wrong, not acceptable. God is going to bring pressure to bear. You're going to see, like, this is not in keeping with holiness. But friends, we could substitute lots of different sins, hundreds of them. For instance, immorality, lying, stealing, vulgarity, unbridled anger. Pick your poison. We're all too familiar with some of this. And what it does is it gives this deep sense of, of, of like pain and hurt and guilt. And this is what happens. Christians then think like, I have got to pay some sort of penance to restore peace. It's like I've got to inflict or bring pain upon myself to somehow kind of balance the scales of justice. And, and this is something that humanity does. And it actually now can even be shown scientifically that people will try to bring on uh, self-inflicted pain to deal with guilt that they're experiencing. And they try to feel like this is going to lessen it. This, uh, there was a study that was published in the Journal of Psychological Science. Where it was pretty fascinating. A pretty brilliant person came up with this. What they did is they brought all these people in, these volunteers, and they had them write an essay. Some of the people were told to write an essay about just some sort of experience, good experience in their life, and they write a little short essay. Others were supposed to write an essay about a time where they had done something really wrong to someone, or really hurt them, or maligned them, or done something evil, okay? And so they write their little short essay. And then what they did is they had these bowls of water. Some of the water was lukewarm, and then some of the water was like, had ice, and it was ice cold, as cold as you could make water, Okay. And so what they would do is they would ask the people to put their hand in the water and they'll keep it there as long as they can. And they wanted them to think about what they wrote. And so if, is there any guilt 
Did you feel remorse? If there's anything that you felt in regards to what you wrote, we want you to think about that and you keep your hand in the water as long as possible. What they found is that the people that had, were dealing with the guilt of some of the things, bad things that they'd done, they kept their hand in that ice water, which was painful, a lot longer than anybody else. They, they actually inflicted pain upon themselves, and this is what they concluded from this study. Quote, researchers explained that we tend to associate pain with justice as a form of punishment. So when we're feeling bad about an immoral act we committed, experiencing pain makes us feel like we have rebalanced the scales of justice. Therefore, it resolves our guilt. Now, you know, according to the Bible, when you sin, there is going to be guilt. There's going to be pain. That happens. God's using that to bring you back to him, to warn you this is not the course. But to think that you can inflict pain upon yourself, whatever it might be, cutting, putting yourself in situations where you feel like you have to earn or pay penance, friends, that's not Christianity. What you do is you come to Christ who has been fully condemned in our place. Romans 8.1 becomes life for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ alone has taken the punishment for your sin. But I feel bad, and I feel like I need to do something to myself because I feel bad. Friends, what you need to do is you need to run to Christ and look to him because he's paid it all in your place. And when you let that truth settle into your heart, it leads to worship and a life of love for the Savior. And if you want to see why there's no condemnation, look at verse 2. We've got a brand new identity. For the law, or the governing principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. God says that we are free because of the law of spirit and of life. Jesus made this promise. John 14, John chapter 16, we call it the upper room discourse. He promised to send his Holy Spirit to his people. And that is exactly what happened. When you believe in Christ, you are literally sealed and set apart to him because his spirit now resides in your life. And like he says in verse 2, the law of, spirit of, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You no longer are under sin, and you're no longer under death. You will, will not ever face the penalty. Do you know why? Because you've been united with Christ. You have a brand new identity. And one of the most definitive and succinct statements on the substitutionary atonement is verse 3. Look what he says. For the law, what, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law could not overcome sin, right? All the law could do is show you your guilt. You couldn't escape sin. You couldn't earn righteousness. The law pointed the way, and our sinful humanity shows, guess what? We can't do it. So God addresses our sin issue, and this is how he did it. He sent his own son, God the eternal son, existed through all eternity. He enters into humanity and he comes in the likeness. He is not in sinful flesh, but he is fully man in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he becomes what? An offering for sin and he condemns sin in the flesh. Literally, 
He bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he condemned sin, meaning he broke the penalty. The condemnation toward sin was broken because Christ satisfied it. And friends, that means that you and I have a brand new identity. In fact, he says in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has satisfied the just demands of the law. And this is really important for you to understand. That is why Christ entered into humanity, because he fulfilled everything that the law required. That's why we say he fulfilled all righteousness, because you and I couldn't. And the culminating act of that is when he actually goes, and though he is sinless, he dies in our place. And we receive his righteousness, which is transferred to our account, and that puts us in a situation where we are alive. We have a spirit, and the, the law has been satisfied. And we have a whole new identity. And you see what he says in verse 4? That the requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That's an old life, but according to the spirit. And so what you, friends, if you want to thrive in life, you have to understand you have a brand new identity. And you'll really find out what you believe about the gospel when you sin. What do you do when you sin? Okay, you blew it. You said things you shouldn't have. Whatever you did. What do you do? If you think like, I've got to clean my life up and then I'm going to approach God, you don't really fully understand the gospel. You've missed Romans 8.1. What you do is you just run and trust in Christ and you thank God that the reality is you've got a brand new identity because you're united with him. When you think that you have to clean up your life, it's really an affront to God because there is only one savior for sin and you're not it. It's Christ. And we've got a brand new identity. And so what you want to do is you want to regularly think about your identity in Christ. For me, this happens like once a day, sometimes more. I try to intentionally think that I am united with Christ. I think about his life. I think that he died in my place and that he rose again and that I'm literally like the text says. You see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I am in Christ Jesus. I'm not just with him. I am in him. I am united in some mysterious, miraculous way. I am in Christ Jesus. And you and I, we understand identity. Like you identify with a family, Uh, You might have a company shirt on. You identify with your company. Uh, Like sports teams, you might identify with your sports team. Like you paint yourself blue or whatever you're going to do. You you know know what I'm talking about? Because you identify with that team. You need to understand that we as Christians, we can thrive when we identify with Christ. We literally see ourselves as his people. Because how you think of yourself is how you're going to live your life. How you think of yourself is how you're going to live your life. And friends, if you want to thrive, you need to understand you've got a brand new identity. Let me tell you something else. You also have a new trajectory. You're going in a different direction because of your relationship with Christ. And he actually started introducing this concept in verse 4 when he says, you do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The idea of walking is the sense of direction. It's the path that you're on. It's the steps that you're taking. You don't walk according to the flesh, according to the corruption of that fallen nature anymore. 
But what? You walk according to the Spirit. And he says in verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You see, God has basically divided humanity into two groups. There are those who are in the flesh. What does that mean? It means that your orientation is self. It's all about you. You follow the impulses of your body. You do what you want. You create your own world because you seek to live life independently of God. Or even if you're religious, it, has, it is all about you and your benefit and what you can earn. Those are people in the flesh. On the other hand, those who are trusting in Christ are in the Spirit. And notice what he says, but you set your mind, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. So you have, your mind is actually set on the spirit. For those according to flesh, they set their minds on the flesh. And that explains humanity in it for themselves. It explains all the evil that we see in our world. However, those who are spiritual, who know Christ, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. They have an orientation, their will, their affections have everything to do with being focused on God. And he says in verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So if you're a non-Christian, you need to know that the direction and the results of your life will be death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. But if you're a Christian, it's a whole new reality. You have you actually have the spirit of life. You are in a new direction in your life. You are now concerned with the things that God's concerned about. You want to honor Christ. You're actually concerned about worship. You read his word because you actually want to get to know God. You, uh, you pray. You actually love people. You serve people. You actually really want people to know God. And you want them to grow and mature in their relationship with God. Why? Because you're on a new trajectory. Since you've become a Christian, can you see life change? Are you in a new direction? You, the Christian should be able to say, yeah, I see changes because the Spirit of God is bringing about a whole new direction in my life. And that's what he's highlighting here. He says, verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And now he tells you why. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh, it's what? It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If there was ever a couple of verses that directly addressed the religious person who, not, who is not truly trusting in Christ, these would, be, these would be the verses. Because it doesn't matter your sacrifice, it doesn't matter the things that you've done, how religious you are, how you dress, the kind of morality that you're imposing on yourself. If you have not truly trusted in Christ, you need to know that this is true of you. You cannot please God. You're not even able to do so. You need the Spirit. You need God himself to invest himself into your life. And so he says, you know what? We're on a brand new direction. We're on a new trajectory. And so when you see in verse 4, when he talks about we're walking not according to the flesh, but the Spirit, we've setting our mind not on the flesh, but on the Spirit, 
He's talking about the direction, the trajectory of our life. Now, don't you find this? You're like, man, that is awesome news. New direction. But don't you find that you easily get off track? Like, I do. Like, you have different things happen. All of a sudden, you got some sort of unsettling circumstances or another difficulty or another problem, another trial. And what happens is you kind of get off track. How do you get back with that trajectory of being set, setting your mind on the Spirit? Well, one of the things that I've found to be very helpful is to actually have developed like a personal mission statement. And so when I kind of sense like, whoa, 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 something's, I'm, I'm off track, okay? And it happens, right? Just like it happens with you. And so I have this simple mission statement. Uh, I've had it for years. And I just try to rehearse it. And then I actually pray through it. And it's simply this. And, and you don't have to have mine, but I'll just share with you mine. And it's just this. To walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life that we have in Christ. I want to be a, a life-giving leader. So I want to I want to walk joyfully, my direction in my life, my next steps, to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life that we have in Christ. I find that in 30 seconds that that will completely redirect my orientation. It kind of gets me back on track. You don't have to have mine, but I encourage you to, to either develop one, find one. I mean, it could be as simple as like loving God and loving others. That's right, I'm loving God, loving others. Or to know him and to make him known. But you need to understand if you're going to thrive, that you remember that you're in a new direction. The old things have passed. You are in a new direction. You are united with Christ. You got a new identity. And you're on a new path of honoring and glorifying God. And let me give you just one other thing that you need to know if you're really going to thrive in life. And that is this that you have a new reality. If you want to see how the Christian life is possible, then you want to lock in to verses 9 through 11. Because the new reality is this. We are in the Spirit. He says, verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now you're going to see if several times, verse 9 and 10, for your little Greek lesson for today. That if is a first-class condition. It could be translated since. It is assuming that is true. So he says, since, could be translated since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Which, this one verse could bring so much clarity to a lot of confusion that is out there. There are so many people that think like, the reason why you're not really doing so well in your Christian life is that you've never received the Holy Spirit. You haven't had the second baptism in the Holy Spirit or the second blessing. What you really need to do is have an experience where you receive the Holy Spirit. That oftentimes in some circles is associated with like speaking in tongues, but you have to have this event where you are experiencing the fullness of the Spirit. And they call it a second blessing or a second baptism. But what does the scripture say? Look at verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not even belong to him. When do you actually receive the Spirit of God? At the moment you believe. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. When you believe, you are actually sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit actually takes up residency in your life. He now empowers you to walk with him. There is so much that changes. Not only who you are positionally, that you're united with Christ, you're forgiven, you're justified, but you actually now are the home 
of the Spirit of God. You see that in verse 9? The Spirit of God dwells where? Where is the Spirit of God dwelling? In you. He actually is dwelling in you. That means that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, where's Christ? He actually is dwelling in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Your body is breaking down and decaying. Did you know that? Okay, some of us are knowing that more than others, but we understand that, okay? But we need to know that you are alive. Your soul is alive. Your spirit is alive because you've been united with Christ. And here is a verse, verse 11. I got a star by it. I've underlined it because this is one of the key verses of the New Testament. Look at this. He says, but if or since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he literally dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God is going to give life to your mortal body. That means not only are you going to experience spiritual life, authentic, the fullness of life in Christ in this life, that also means that when you pass from this life and your body is buried, that you're going to eventually receive a body that is fit for eternity. Why? Because God has made you alive in Christ and he wants you to experience the fullness of life in him. And this is the new reality for the believer. I know that we got problems, troubles, trials, right? Temptations, but we can thrive. Do you know why? We got a new reality. We have the spirit of God. That means that we have a new perspective when we turn to him, peace, we have hope, we have forgiveness, we realize that we're not condemned. Anytime you need strength or power, all we need to do is turn and trust to Christ. And that is the beauty of walking with God. Things are as they should be. They're moving in that direction. D.L. Moody, when he became a Christian in his adult life, he wrote of this of his conversion experience. He said, afterwards, I was in a new world. The next morning, the sun shone brighter and the birds sang sweeter and the old elms waved their branches for joy and all nature was at peace. And what we want to do is continue to focus our minds and our hearts on the Spirit. Let me give you some just simple ways that can be done. Like, for instance, you want to just pray, talk to God, and literally be still before Him. Or another just means of grace is just getting to know God by getting to know His Word. When you read the Word, understand that these are words for you and your soul. Or actually having some friendships that actually encourage you in your walk with God, that point you to Christ, that people that will pray with you, that, we, that will point you and find out, you know what, our hope, our sense of well-being, it's found in Jesus. It is one of the reasons why we emphasize personal discipleship so much here at Fellowship, because we need these kind of relationships because we're prone to forget our identity, our trajectory, and even this new reality. But Christ will empower you and strengthen you. And he wanted his first disciples to understand that, and he wants his disciples today to understand that. Remember in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus had sent his boys out on the boat and told them to cross the lake. He himself was hanging back, praying, and then he actually, Jesus is walking in water. He's making his way to his guys. And he's, and, uh, he's coming by them. It looks like he's even going to pass them on the boat. They see him. It's like between 3 and 6 a.m. Like, whoa, 
Jesus is walking on the water. Whoa, no one walks on the water. And they're all, remember, they thought they were seeing a ghost and they're all panicking, right? And then Peter says, Jesus, if it's you, I ask you, would you command me to get out of the boat and come to you? Because Jesus already told him, don't be frightened, okay? And so Jesus says one word, come. And Peter literally gets out of the boat. Can you imagine what that's like? Whoop, and it's on the water. He's doing something that's impossible. All circumstances, reality says, no, 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 no. You do not walk on water. And now Peter is, all the other guys in the boat, they're watching this, and Peter is walking on water. And he's like taking one step after another. He is coming to Jesus. But then he realizes, I'm walking on water. You can't do that. And he starts to see that the water, and he starts sinking. He utters the shortest prayer in the Bible, Lord, save me. Remember that? Jesus is like, okay, here we go again. You know, he pulls him right out, the ultimate lifeguard, and he takes, puts him in the boat there, kind of shakes off the water, he sets him in there, and they are all in awe of Jesus, and they're worshiping him. And they're asking, who is this? Who is this that can do this? And you need to understand when you go through your difficulties, and which one of us is not, right? I mean, I know you. I know a lot of what's going on in this room. I know what's going on in my own life. There's, there's difficult stuff, right? We could all stand up and start talking about some of the difficulties we're facing. But the beauty of it is, we don't go through it alone. We are united with Christ. He is with us. And we got a brand new reality. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit and he's delivered. And we walk in his strength. Let me give you two very important questions for your growth. Uh, these, these questions that I think of regularly. When you think of this, when your circumstance or your difficulty, they ask this question. First, Lord, what would maturity in Christ look like in this situation or this relationship? And, and then just actually try to imagine or vision, what could that look like? What would maturity look like in this situation? I'm sure you could imagine what immaturity would look like, right? I will throw things, I'll throw a tantrum, whatever, right? Yeah? Okay, we all know what immaturity looks like, and we've all lived it, okay? But what does maturity in Christ look like? And then ask this second question, Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do this? And watch God's Spirit come into play. You will be shocked. Like, whoa, I'm handling this so much better. Where did that come from? It came from His Spirit. It comes from God, and we grow and mature. You know, if we're going to, in order to thrive in this life, you know what you need to know? You need to know what it means to be alive in Christ. What does that look like? It looks like Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. In his book, Ghost Soldiers, a guy by the name of Hampton Sides, he tells of this dramatic mission during World War II, uh, what the situation was that in January 28, 1945, the United States selected 121. They were hand-picked army rangers to go on a very dangerous mission to go into the interior behind enemy lines in the Philippines to rescue 513 American and British POWs that had been in this, this hellish prison camp. They were abused. They were just, I mean, completely almost devoid of what it means to be human. And so the United States says, we have got to rescue these people. So they sent these soldiers in and and in the book, they describe what this looks like and the gunfight, and they kind of actually then liberated this camp, the chaos and the fear. Then they got to the actual prisoners. Many of these prisoners, they didn't even know how to respond. And so they'd actually run away from the very people that were trying to liberate them. One of these guys with a guy named Burt Bank, 
he, he, he'd been in this camp for three years. He refused to budge. Even when a ranger walked up to him, put his hand on there, and said, come on. He said, come on, we're here to save you. And he, he said, run for the gate. And this prisoner, Burt Bank, he just sat there, wouldn't move. So this ranger gets down and just looks in his face. And his, his eyes, he said, they're like totally vacant. Like nothing was registering. And he said to this guy, hey, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to be free? And at the word freedom, free. This soldier had been in captivity for three years, been abused. He started to think about the word free. A smile kind of came to his face. And he received that hand. That stranger pulled him up and they, they actually started walking. They actually got almost all but one of the guys out of that camp. And they were getting them ready for a 25-mile march behind enemy lines to a ship that was waiting for them. There was one guy that missed it all. His name was Edwin Rose. He was on latrine duty, and he finished up to just show you just how beaten to oblivion these guys were. He finished his duties. He went back to the hut. He didn't notice that all of his comrades were gone. He just gets back on his mat and lays down. And the reason that he didn't know what was going on is that he was deaf. And he didn't hear the gunfighting or the hell yelling when the Americans were saying, we're leaving now, come on, everybody, get together. When they made their march, you need to know two of the rangers died in this liberation movement, and two of them, the prisoners, died because they were in such poor health they couldn't even make the, the journey of the ship. Edwin Rose was actually eventually rescued as well. And they said that what happened is stunned disbelief gave way to soaring optimism with each step when they realized that they had been made free. And friends, that's what it's like to be a Christian. We go from condemnation to soaring optimism. We've been made free with Christ. We can live differently. We can literally thrive. And, you know, we've moved from failure to thrive to the fullness to thrive when we learn to focus on Christ. Is that what you want? I can assure you that's what God wants for your life. He wants this fullness of thriving. You know where it comes from? Keep focusing on Christ. You see, in order to thrive in life, we've got to know what it means to be alive in Christ. And that's what you find in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How you have laid it out, life in your Son, what it means no condemnation. Man, we are free. Hallelujah. To have a whole new direction in life. No longer walking the flesh, but walking with you. And a reality that that's possible because of your spirit. We praise you and thank you. And Father, for anyone who has come here today who's never trusted in your son, would they right now and just say, God, I turn from my sin. <laughs> this is my moment. And I believe in Jesus. I need the fullness of life. I need forgiveness of sins. I need you to change me from the inside out. And so I place my faith in your son Jesus right now. And Father, for the rest of us, may we walk in the fullness of joy. May we realize we've got a brand new identity and we think daily about that. We've got a new trajectory. We are walking with you. We represent you. We have a new reality. We are filled with your spirit. You have sealed us, marked us, and you own us. And we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.